So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Like I said, if you don't, uh, the Pew Bible is page 974. And actually, if you have a different translation other than the New American Standard Bible, you can pull out the Pew Bible as well and read them side by side um, and get an idea of what the differences are and see how translations impact things. I will be the first to admit that um, I had been reading through this scripture for a while, and I thought that I had everything prepared about a week ago, and I had like, written it all out, and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then on Friday night, I started typing up my notes into a little section, and as I was typing, I started to notice that what I was typing was not what I had written, and instead, I was focusing on something that I didn't pay much attention to before, and so the Holy Spirit convicted me that there was a very specific thing uh, that this congregation and this body needs to see uh, in this passage. Um, so, uh, with me, we are in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 through 33, and I will begin by reading the scripture before we go any further. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you this morning as we open up your word and we ask that you will reveal to us the things that we need to see to grow more like you, to love you more, to see you more, and to use this as a tool to love our neighbors as ourselves, Lord. We invite the Holy Spirit into our congregation, into our hearts, and we ask that as we read this passage, Lord, that you will impart wisdom into our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, this passage. It's an interesting passage. I've heard this preached several times before in my life. I have grown up in charismatic circles. And uh, charismatics love to talk about faith. Faith, faith, faith. They love it. It is just their favorite thing. Um, and what I've also heard is that this passage... Um, we talk a lot about Peter's faith, or more specifically, his lack of faith. And what I realized is, if we focus only on that, we miss the entire point of this passage. What's interesting is this is included in two of the other Gospels. It's included in Mark, and it's included in John, but Peter is absent in those stories. His involvement is absent. And so it's included for a reason but it's not included to be the main point. You see, Peter is kind of like us. 
With our words, we profess Christ, and then with our actions, we doubt. We are all guilty. We are all out of the boat with Peter. And so the danger of this passage is if you preach solely about Peter, well, then you can do that thing where, like, well, if you just had enough faith, you could walk on water, right? Or Peter could have walked all the way on the water, failing to realize that in this passage, we are Peter. We're not greater than Peter. We're not lesser than Peter. We're not supposed to pit ourselves against Peter in this passage. Rather, we are supposed to set our eyes on Christ. And the moment we start looking at Peter and his faith and his doubting, and we start basing it on our own, then we take our eyes off Christ just like Peter did. And so today, I come to you with a different view of this passage. This is what I'm calling the suffering Savior. Many of you have heard that Jesus is the suffering servant, right? We sing a song about that. But to make this make sense, I need to track back a little bit in 14. We don't have to read it, but I just want to paraphrase it so that you understand where this is coming out in the context of this passage. Jesus, at the beginning of this passage, actually in verse 13, he finds out that his cousin John has been beheaded, has been killed. Right? We all know this. He finds out that he has been killed and beheaded. And it says in verse 13, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Jesus intended to get away from people, to pray, to lament, to be with God. And what happened is the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. They wouldn't let Jesus be alone. Now in Matthew's gospel, the last time Jesus was alone was when he went out into the wilderness. So when Jesus goes out to be alone in Matthew, it's kind of a big deal. Even in the end, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, three of his apostles are there keeping watch. So Jesus is never totally alone, but here, in this moment, he is alone. He wants to be alone. Why? Well, what we often forget about Jesus is that Jesus, while he is fully God, he is also fully man. How can we believe in a Savior who can't feel the same pain that we feel? How can we believe in a Savior who can't stoop to the lowest of lows and know what it's like to go through grief and pain and heartache if, he isn't, if he's only God? And so like us, Jesus is grieving immensely. John was his cousin, as we know from the Gospels. Not only was he his cousin, but he was also a prophet. And Jesus says that he was Elijah to come, the guy that we just read about who heard the voice of God. He was Elijah to come. And not only that, but when, when John was a baby, he had the Holy Spirit in him, and it made him leap in the womb when he was in the presence of Jesus in the womb. They were tied together. And to take it one step farther, John was the one who baptized Jesus. So if you don't think there's some sort of connection here, there's a huge connection. John is no ordinary man. Jesus says that he was the greatest of the prophets. And so Jesus here is suffering. It is absolutely key. My first point before we even get started is that Jesus feels. And if you can't believe in a Jesus that feels, then he's just some distant deity that loves you from a distance, but the reality is he is in human form. He has been made flesh to feel. Even when he dies on the cross, he is feeling every ounce of pain that comes along with it. 
while suffering for your sins. We need to think of Jesus in human terms sometimes because if we don't, we fail to see the picture. I'm going to read you two passages that make this make sense. And actually, I would argue um, are sort of essential to the doctrine. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? And then in John chapter 1, 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us that He became flesh. Philippians chapter 2, and I want you to kind of flip over there because I want you to see this. I'm going to read you a passage and we're going to reference it a few times. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 6 to 11 before we go through the passage that we're in. Uh, I'm reading, in the, again, I'm doing everything out of the New American Standard, so uh, the Pew Bibles will have it. Other translations are going to be similar, but it's also Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're at. Verse 6, it says, this is, this is about Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, if you will, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see here that Jesus emptied himself In the beginning was the Word. It was with God. And He emptied Himself to take the form of a man so that He could could come to save us. He was found in the appearance of a man. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So if you don't think that Jesus feels, then you have missed it. Jesus feels. Jesus knows how it feels. Jesus feels pain, Jesus feels sorrow, Jesus feels grief, Jesus feels everything that we do. When he went into the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil, and he overcame the devil, but he went through all the same crazy temptations that we go through in our own heads. Jesus knows. And so my first point before we ever go any further is that Jesus feels. And so we see here in verse 22 of Matthew 14, and again, keep Philippians 2 kind of in the back of your mind there. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And in verse 23 it says, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. So Jesus, feeling the full weight of grief, sends the disciples away. It says he made them. Why did he make them? Well, they kept following him, didn't they? And then the crowd kept following him, too. Let's not forget that just last week we read that he performed a huge miracle where he fed 5,000 people with only a little bit of fish and bread, right? And so this crowd is naturally following him where they go. And it says he made, he compelled, he, he made them. 
Uh, if that, those two words doesn't sink in the fact that he is sovereign and he is Lord and he is the king, well, then I don't know what is. He made them. I would imagine the disciples were like, oh, Jesus, how are you going to meet us? <laughs> how are you going to get across the water, man? Like, what's the, you don't have another boat. All we have is this one boat. Come on. Why don't you want to jump in with us? And he's like, no, guys, go. And so the only reason why Jesus wants to be alone is to pray to God, to be at the top of the mountain, the very place that the Holy of Holies intersects with humanity. We see that theme played out through the entirety of the Bible. Eden is the Holy of Holies. The temple is the Holy of Holies. Moses goes all the way to the top of the mountain to receive the law. Jesus goes to the top of the mountain to give the Beatitudes. And now he returns back to the top to pray and be in God's presence. Because like us, he feels the pain. And he needs communion with God. And so here in verse 24, it says, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So we'll stop right there. It shoots over to the disciples, right? They're in the boat. And they're a long distance from the land, and it says they're battered by the waves. And there's this little theme that runs out. It's mentioned three times in this passage. It says, for the wind, the wind, the wind. The wind was contrary, it says, meaning that it was counter to them. So if you were in a sailboat, the wind would essentially be blowing against your sail instead of with your sail. And so these disciples are trying to do God's command, right? God has just made them. It says he made them. So he's tr they're trying to do what God wants them to do, which is to get across the other side. But they're kind of fighting this ominous wind. And actually, in the Greek, it's, it's almost like a demonic presence. It's, it's phrased that way. It's not just wind. It's like a spiritual evil that is fighting against them. And so what's happening is they're being battered by the waves and the wind is contrary and they're not getting anywhere. In fact, I would imagine that they probably were blown in the opposite direction. Some of the other books in the Bible kind of make it seem as though they, they went a long way, but maybe not where they were intending to go. And so in verse 25 it says, In the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. So, uh, in, in Roman terms, the fourth watch of the night would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means they've been up all night <laughs> paddling this boat, fighting this storm, fighting this wind, and they are probably tired, exhausted, and most likely delirious. How many of you uh, had a chance to see any of the wind of Hurricane Isaias? I think I got that right. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. I stayed up till 12 and watched some trees blow. It wasn't too bad. Kind of weak sauce for a hurricane, if you ask me. Um, but the point is, we, living on the coast, have a good idea of what they're fighting. They're fighting this ominous wind that can break the trees, right? can blow these huge white caps in there. And it says that they're fighting it in the fourth watch. They've been fighting it all night. And then Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. Now, what's key here is it does not say that the storm was calmed by Jesus. Doesn't say that right now. No, he's walking on the sea. So he is walking into their storm. The storm is still raging. I've always seen those pretty pictures of Jesus kind of like, you know, like moonwalking on some uh, white caps, like, hey guys, and he's glowing a little bit, right? 
But that's not what this says. He walks into it. He walks into the storm. So he's walking through, and there's probably wind and waves battering, but he's just, he's not running. He's not like skipping around or hovering. He's, just, he's walking straight through it. Walking. Jesus calmly walking through a hurricane, a tempest. He walks into their storm. And so my second point is this. Jesus enters into our suffering, right? Think of that. Jesus is suffering right now, right? He's, he's going through this pain. He's going through this grief. He's praying, and he knows that his disciples are suffering. So he leaves the place in which he is praying to go save someone else while he is also going through something. And he walks into their storm. He enters into the suffering with them. He's with you. He's with you. So think about the storms in your life. Think about the problems that you're going through. Grief, pain, heartache, addictions. Jesus is not far away. He walks into your storm. And he's standing there with you. There is no length that Christ would not travel to save those that he loves. And I know this for a fact because it says it in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. We read this last week. It says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And why won't it be able to separate us? Because he's there. He is there in it. He is there. Jesus walks in to the storm, walks into the tempest, and he's right there with us. In verse 26 it says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now again, let's, let's think about the disciples for a moment. They have been fighting a wind all night long, trying to do what God has told them to do. They are tired. They are delirious. They are worn out. And they see Jesus walking, and they think it is a ghost or in the actual phrase, an apparition, a spirit, something evil. And so they cry out in fear. Because think about it, if you're fighting a hurricane and something starts coming at you, it's probably not going to be something good. And so this isn't about doubting, this is just being stuck in this moment. And so sometimes when Jesus comes at us in our storm, we think, oh gosh, what is that? Maybe this isn't what I need. But then... And this is so key. In verse 27 it says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Immediately. Immediately. The words are being uttered out of their mouth. <laughs> saying, it is a ghost. And he's like, no, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage, it is I. And so what we can understand from this passage is that Jesus' words are our comfort. When we're in the storm, the words of Christ are our comfort. He says, take courage. Do not be afraid. Why? Because he is there. He's there with you. Because he is here. The word, it is I, is actually the same 
when I found this so cool and I was looking at it, it's actually the same as I am, which is what is said to Moses at the burning bush. It is the name by which God refers to himself throughout the Old Testament. Be still. Take courage. Do not be afraid. Why? I am. Take courage. Do not be afraid. Because he is here. The psalm that we read earlier today, Psalm 29, is so beautiful. And I'm going to read it again to you. It says, Ascribe to the Lord... O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare, and in his temple everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. The voice of the Lord gives strength to his people. The voice of the Lord blesses his people with peace. And so when you are in that storm, listen for the voice of the Lord. Listen. It is our comfort. It is our good. It breaks through the wind. As we read in 1 Kings earlier, Elijah goes to find the Lord and there's lightning and there's thunder and there's an earthquake and there's a storm and the voice of the Lord isn't there. But at the end of all of it, there is a still and it is the word of the Lord. And so Jesus here says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Notice there's no explanation marks in any of this. Jesus is not yelling it at them. He's speaking calmly and in peace. And he's bringing calm. He's bringing peace. And so here in verse 28, this is where everything goes wrong if we, if we preach this the wrong way. And I'm going to try not to. It says, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. And so I want to first say this. We know that Jesus feels, right? Jesus enters into our suffering, and we know that Jesus' words are our comfort. Now, there's one thing that we need to know also about Jesus. His miracles are for doubters, Think about it. If you believe, you don't need the miracle. It's for doubters. And so where most people get this passage wrong is they start to look a little further in. And they see that Peter sees the wind and they're like, oh, that's where he fell. But the reality is, is if you pay close attention to what Peter said from the beginning, you will see that he was already doubting. Jesus just said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. 
So here we see that Peter doubted before he ever stepped out of the boat. If it is you. No, it is him because he just said it is. If there's anything, if you, know, if you know anything about the words I am, especially in the book of John, it happens over and over and over again. And when Jesus just says I am at the end, the people fall back in fear because it's so powerful. God just revealed his name to you. And so if you deny that, you've already doubted. And so we're not going to pit ourselves against Peter, but we're going to look like Peter today. You see, we're the same way. We want to do what sounds good, but we don't actually want to do the action. So what Peter is saying is, Lord, if it is you, ask me to come out, thinking, ah, he's not going to call me out. He's not going to ask me to come forward. He's not going to actually ask me to step through in my suffering and do something. And what does Jesus do? He says, come, with an exclamation mark. This one, he's yelling at Peter, come. Let's see what you can do, Peter. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Before we go any further, we need to know that Peter walked on the water, people. Peter <laughs> walked on the water. He may not have made it all the way to Jesus. It says he came toward. He didn't make it quite there, but he walked. And so let me just tell you this. Miracles are for doubters. Peter was a doubter, and Jesus allowed him to walk on the water. This has nothing to do with his faith. Jesus allowed that man to walk on the water. In fact, actually, Jesus wants him to come to him. Jesus wants us to make it all the way through. It's we who don't make it all the way through. And so Peter's doubt is apparent in his words, yet Christ still calls him to walk. I was reading the book of James the other day, and James, man, James will challenge you on your faith, that is for sure, because James is like, hey, faith without words means nothing. And there's this one passage here in James 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, <clears throat> For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. The key here is doubt, people. It's not faith. Jesus later on tells us if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, that we could throw this big tree into the ocean, or that we could move mountains. I have never seen anyone do that. Even the greatest charismatic preacher of all time, I have never seen any of them move a mountain with their faith. And so the reality is, our faith sucks. <laughs> How about that? Our faith stinks. We're just like Peter. We lack it. No matter how strong we think we are, our faith is never quite there. And that's actually for our good. The reason why is because we're not Christ. If we had strong faith, we would never rely on Christ. We would try to conjure up everything ourselves. And that's the point of this passage. It's when we are weak, he is strong. Yeah. And so in verse 30, it says, but seeing the wind, here's that wind again, that demonic evil presence. He became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter walked on the water until he saw the wind. The way to think of this is this. As long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher and perfecter of our faith, he would have walked there. But the moment he was distracted, he doubted. And all of us do that. Every single one of us do that. All of us are sinners in need of grace. And we all divert our attention away from Christ for something else that we think is more important. 
Oh, the wind's going to get me. Oh, this bill that I can't afford. Oh, this new TV that I really want. Oh, this job that I wish I had. Oh, this car. Everything is our distraction. And we, I think, in America, live in a place where distractions are everywhere. And they cause us to doubt. They cause us to turn our eyes. That's what doubting means. It means to to literally turn our direction away from. If repenting is turning our way to, then doubting is turning our way from. And so Peter fell not because of his faith, but because of his doubt. Peter fell because he turned his eyes away from Jesus. He started to get arrogant and cocky, and he started to think to himself, I can walk on this water, and the next thing you know, he is sinking, sinking in. It's when we no longer need Christ that we start to fail. And so he reaches out his hand, and immediately, it says in verse 30, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. It's not until they get in the boat that the turmoil is over. Even while he's rescuing Peter, he's still going through the wind and the waves and the hurricane that's around him. But I love this. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Now, if you're sinking, I want you to get this picture. It's not like Jesus does like with my kids where I hold my hand and I walk with them. Like, hey, come on, you got it, let's go. It's not like that at all. No, Jesus picked him up and held him and carried him into that boat. And that is the posture that we have to have before Jesus. This is the servant that we need to be. We need to be the one who doesn't think with our pride we can walk out into the water, but rather that we are the one who so desperately needs Christ that we can do nothing without him. That is the only way that we'll make it. And immediately Jesus stretches out his hand. The passage we read today from Romans 10, in verse 13 it says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In that moment, he will reach out his hand and he will bring you to the boat. Bring you into his presence. He will grab you and he will take you there. That doesn't mean he won't call you out on your mistakes and your failures. Part of love is also disciplining. He calls him out. Why did you doubt? He doesn't say, hey, why didn't you have faith? He says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? The key is, why did you doubt, Peter? And the reality is, is that Peter just simply took his eyes off Christ. That's what we do when we go through things. We get in storms of our own and we get trapped in our mind. And the next thing we know, we find ourselves in despair because we have taken our eyes off Christ. But if we put our eyes on Christ, if we turn to him, immediately he will save us. And so what I have come to the conclusion of in this passage here, before I go any further, is that our pride prevents our salvation. That is literally what it is. Our pride in ourselves. Peter was sinking. He was beginning to sink. Now there's two things that he could have done. He could have continued to sink, right? He could have drowned in his own sorrow. Or he could have called on the name of the Lord and be saved. And he called on the name of the Lord and he was saved. And so don't be the person who sinks. Don't think you can do this on your own. Don't. Christ is for you. 
Christ knows you. Christ feels the pain that you feel, and Christ wants to carry you home. Do not be prideful in your sin. Turn your eyes to Jesus. It's when we are weak that he is strong. It's when we are low that he is exalted. It's when we are poor that he is rich. It is when we fail that he is victorious. There's this passage that I love. It comes from 2 Corinthians. And I know I've had you guys bouncing all around here. It's from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had a thorn in his side, as he called it. And he petitioned to the Lord. In verse 8, it says of chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, he says, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. This is the pain that is, is, is burdening him. And Jesus, he says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Gosh. How many Christians do you know that want to prove how strong they are, how righteous they are, how pious they are, how right the Bible is as opposed to the rest of the world. That's not humbleness. That's pride. His power is made strong in weakness. It's when we are weak that he is strong. That kid's song that gets stuck in your head, there's so much truth in that. When you are weak and you are relying on Christ, that is when Christ shows through. No one can see Christ when you're standing in the way of him. Paul continues here, he says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many of us have that mindset? Even John the Baptist, the one who he was grieving, saw the greatness of Jesus and said, I must decrease so he can increase. We have to decrease so he can increase in our lives. And so when we fail, we are victorious. And what's amazing about this passage is what happens next. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And then in verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. This is the first time that people have recognized this in the book of Matthew. The last person to say, this is my son, who I'm well pleased, was God himself when he was baptized. This is the first time that anyone has uttered these words in this chapter, in this book. They see the failing of Peter, and they're brought to the conclusion that this is God. This is the Christ. Before, I don't even think they had a total idea of why they were following this man around. They knew he was miraculous. They knew something was interesting about him. Maybe he's the prophet. Maybe he's the one to come. But at this point in time, they realized, no, this is the Son of God. This is Christ. And so the last thing we have to remember is that Jesus is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, then that means that he will fulfill the promises that we were given about him. True worship is the recognition and belief in who he is. Back to Psalm 29, what we read just a minute ago. If you read those first two verses, it's what we're supposed to do. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O sons the mighty. 
Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. We recognize who He is and we are to ascribe to Him. We are to give all to Him. We are to give all glory to Him because He is good. And so I will take this home with the passage that we read from Romans earlier because I love Romans and I like merging all these things together. Uh, it says, we, we glorify him ultimately by our praise to him. And there's nothing that glorifies him more than confessing that he is Lord and believing in his resurrection. So in Romans 10, the key to salvation, people, it's right here. Romans 10, verse 9 it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who Call on him. And to end it on verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter in that moment was saved. He was drowning in his sin, his pride and his arrogance and his doubting. But Jesus swept him up and carried him to the boat only when he cried out, Lord, save me. And so what we have to recognize about Jesus is that he is Lord. He is the Son of God. And we have to believe that with our heart and confess with our mouths that he is Lord of all. And that he, most importantly, did not die on a cross and stay dead, but was resurrected and brought new life to all of us. Jesus was resurrected. And for those who believe, we do not die, but we are resurrected with him. He has saved us and brought us home. And so this morning, I want you to remember these things. Jesus feels your pain. He feels your heartache. He too was a man. He came to this earth knowing all of the trouble, but he emptied himself out to feel it and to save you from it. And even through that, he enters into your pain, into your suffering. He speaks words of love and comfort. He performs miracles so that we can no longer doubt. And he saves those who call on his name. For that, we know that he is the Son of God. And that should bring us all to doxology, to that point in our lives where we are truly humbled before him and ready to worship him and give him our all. There is a prayer that I found in a book. I've been reading a lot of Puritan prayers. And it was just so profound. It's by an old Puritan named Robert Hawker. Um, and if you're interested in this, see me after. I'll give you a book of prayers. If you don't know what to pray, pick up this and just pray like the, the, the Puritans did. It will change your life, I'm telling you. It's amazing. It was called, No One Speaks Like Jesus, and I've changed it to be a corporate prayer. So if you will, just uh, let's, let's bow our heads and I'll pray this together, and we'll pray it over you. 
It says, precious Lord Jesus, how will we express our soul's sense of your love and grace, your mercy and favor? Since you first revealed yourself to our hearts, we are no longer our own. You have taken all our affections with you to heaven and caused them to center everything in yourself. So now, Lord, every day, sometimes every hour, when we hear your voice, we have to cry out, no one ever spoke like this man. Your words are sweet and perfect for our weary souls. And our sense of nothingness makes your fullness even more precious. When we hear you say, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, we feel a power that makes all our enemies seem as nothing. Like your servant, we then truly boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Be all we need, dearest Lord. Let us hear your voice and see your countenance, because both in life and in death, in time and to all eternity, the voice of our Lord Jesus will be our everlasting comfort. No one speaks like you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for you before I send you on your way. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning and we give you thanks. We give you glory for your word, that we treat it as your word, that we treat it as truth and life, and that in it this is not just a book of stories, but rather this is actually life. We pray, Lord, that as Peter did, that we call on your name, and in doing so, you will immediately save us, that you will show us a better way, that you will lead us and guide us in strength, that you will give us peace and you will give us comfort, that we will no longer be battered by the waves, and even as we are, Lord, that you will be there with us to guide us through. We give you thanks and glory for your word, Lord, and for the ability to worship and praise you. All glory be to you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for giving me the chance to speak uh, and for allowing me to say these words. Um, as you know, it was a heavy, heavy on my heart this week, so I hope that it finds you well as you carry on this week. Um, I just want to leave us with a few things, a few announcements before we go. Um, we are still doing our tithes online at fficchurch.com, uh, and we also have a little basket in the back that you can give it out. Um, I encourage anyone who needs prayer to stay outside just in the foyer there, and I or Pastor Mitchell at the end will come pray with you, and, and we'll be more than happy to speak with you. Um, and that is pretty much it for now. Uh, these messages are online, so if you know anyone who needs encouragement, who needs words of wisdom, who needs words of strength, by all means, share them with them on our website. And that is all. Now, I will end this, and I will send you on your way. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.